0: Hey, What Next listeners, I have a special announcement for you. For a limited time, you can now get six months of Slate Plus for just $29. bucks. is 50% off. As a member, you will get no ads on any of our podcasts, including this one. You'll also get unlimited reading on the Slate website and member-exclusive episodes and segments from shows like Slow Burn, Amicus, Political Gab Fest. Slate's podcasts, like this one, cover major news events, from elections to social issues to historic court decisions. Our shows also discuss what makes a song a smash, analyze what's going viral, decode cultural mysteries. If we have become part of your listening routine, we ask that you support our work by joining Slate+. Plus. Sign up for Slate Plus now at slate.com slash whatnextplus, and you can access all of Slate's content and support our work. Again, it's just 29 bucks for six months through October 28th. So sign up now at slate.com slash what next plus. I'm gonna tell you the story of a guy named Darren Bailey and his very strange decision to move himself to a city that he hates. Darren Bailey is running for governor of Illinois. He's a Republican. And he's never been very secretive about his feelings for Chicago. He thinks it's filled with criminals. His preferred descriptor is actually hellhole. This is not a test. This is a wake-up call. Chicago is living the purge. This is a press conference Bailey gave in the middle of a city street a few weeks back. For those who will not see, many in the media, those who deny the hellhole Chicago has become, more people have been murdered in Chicago this year than New York City and Los Angeles combined. Let that sink in.
1: He said it's the Wild West, it's unreal.
0: These aren't the kinds of superlatives you want to slap on your new hometown.
1: No, it's weird.
0: I asked Slate's Henry Grabar to explain exactly what's going on here. On the one hand, Henry says, The language Bailey is using, it is straight out of a Republican playbook. It echoes the chief Republican himself. Here in Philadelphia, the murder rate has been steady. I mean, just terribly increasing. And then you look
1: at Chicago. What's going on in Chicago? I said the other day, what the hell is going on? I think the weird thing about Bailey is that he's trying to win votes in and around Chicago. I mean, Trump had pretty much given up on Illinois and given up on Maryland. So when Trump says things like Chicago is like Afghanistan or Baltimore is a rat-infested hellhole or or whatever he said, those comments are not necessarily intended to resonate with anybody who even lives close to these
0: places. But there's something about Bailey's move that seems to make his rhetoric hit different. To Henry— The funny thing is that a stunt like Bailey's isn't unheard of. It's just that usually the people moving to a troubled corner of Chicago are there to help.
1: I can think of two move-to-Chicago stunts. One was Martin Luther King Jr., who moved into the west side of Chicago in the mid-1960s in order to sort of agitate for civil rights and also to, to get a taste of what the civil rights struggle was like in the north. And then Chicago Mayor Jane Byrne moved into the notorious Cabrini Green housing project in the 1980s in a similar way to try and draw attention to the problems in the projects and hopefully get to understand some of them a little better herself. But I think it's pretty clear from his rhetoric, Billy is not in this to help the residents of Chicago get through this tough period.
0: Yeah, he's there to troll people. I mean, this is a guy who, when he was in the Illinois Senate, sponsored a bill to make Chicago its own state. Now he's running to govern the state that Chicago actually is a part of, Illinois. It's just really weird to think about how this factors in.
1: Right. Well, it goes to show the degree to which Republicans, Bailey in particular, but I think this is true of a lot of Republicans across the country, have given up on urban areas and voters who live there. This is not the type of rhetoric designed to convince somebody who's worried about gun violence in Chicago that you know this this is the candidate who's going to fix it. And I think that's you see that from candidates across the board and and to some extent it reflects the Republican party's declining popularity in cities which have become essentially democratic monocultures where conservatives no longer compete.
0: Today on the show, what's happening in Chicago reflects something bigger. The way Republicans have been backing away from cities and the people who live there And it turns out this move is about more than just the words they're using. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. When Henry Gabar set out to write about the ramped-up Republican rhetoric around cities, this year's midterm candidates gave him a lot of material to work with. It isn't just Darren Bailey in Illinois. There's J.D. Vance. He's running for Senate in Ohio. And he's called New York City violent and disgusting, like an episode of The Walking Dead. A Republican in Arizona blamed crime on Black people shooting each other in urban centers. But Henry says this kind of language, it's not just about one political party versus another. Anti-city bias is actually baked into the United States from the founding.
1: Jefferson was famously an agrarian fellow, right? I mean, he believed that a nation of yeoman farmers was sort of the backbone of the American democratic system. And he eventually came around to the idea— that cities were to some extent necessary to give America enough manufacturing power to ensure its independence and security.
0: It's not a wholehearted endorsement.
1: No, not at all. But what he did manage to do, obviously, was write a constitution in which population centers are basically systematically disenfranchised. You can see that in the Senate, which obviously gives a lot of weight to the country's least populous states. And you also see that in the state houses – which tend to be dominated by rural interests, sort of a miniature version of what you see in the U.S. Congress. And then finally, you also see that in the actual writing of the laws, which cities are not mentioned in the U.S. Constitution. They are creatures of states. They are created by state statute, and they are completely subservient to state governments, which tend to be dominated by rural interests. So to the extent that cities can, for example, enact their own policies on uh, gun control or immigration or anything like that, they do so at the will of the state government. And if the state decides they want to take those privileges away, then they could do that.
0: And Democrats are very likely to be in charge of cities right now, but that wasn't always the case, was it? Like they were a rural party.
1: You know, to the extent that there was a big anti-urban rhetoric, it was not partisan. It was motivated by distrust of um, religious minorities, of immigrants, of labor, and a sort of moral righteousness and opposition to the kinds of loose morals that tend to be associated with urban life. that's a that's a real consistent strain that you see. That's you know, that goes all the way through the 1960s where cities start to be associated with the counterculture in places like San Francisco
0: on the Democratic side, is there a rhetorical equivalent to the way Republicans talk about cities?
1: Well, I think that the parties are obviously held to two different standards right now. Um, so I, I hesitate to draw any parallels between them. But I mean, there, there have been instances where Democratic politicians say things that are perceived as insensitive towards the feelings and interests of rural residents. And, and the two most famous ones are, in recent memory at least, are Obama in 2008 saying that residents of Pennsylvania were clinging to their guns and their religion. <laughs>
0: Them that they get better, and they cling to guns or religion or uh, antipathy towards people who aren't like them.
1: But, Which got him in, in a bit of trouble, although he still ended up winning uh, the state. And uh, and Hillary Clinton obviously saying that uh, she thought that vote John Donald Trump voters were a basket of deplorables. A
0: basket of deplorables. Racist, sexist,
1: homophobic, xenophobic, Islamophobic, you name it. And, you know, obviously nobody ever forgot that that Clinton said that. But when you compare the content of those remarks to the kinds of stuff that Trump is saying regularly.
0: Well, and also just the sheer volume where there's just so many more of these comments about cities being hellholes and violent areas and you know awful places to be there's a ton of those comments but these were really outliers when they came from obama and clinton yeah
1: they were gaffes i mean that's the that would be the political term of art i guess what stands out about obama and clinton making those gaffes is the staying power they had it just goes to show you how rare it is to hear democrats make this kind of play the sort of us versus them political play about
0: voters. I want to talk about the practicality of the anti-urban argument because, you know, the U.S. census says over 80 percent of the U.S. population lives in urban areas. I imagine that must include suburbs, but around a city. So it just makes me wonder, like, how a major political party can get away with bashing people for where they live, or at least just, like, calling out these places and trying to pretend like they're so different from the rest of the country?
1: I can't decide. Are they actually trying to persuade swing voters or are they just riling up people who have spent the last two or three years watching videos of people stealing things from CVS, And I think it's more the latter. (laughs) I think it's more the latter and less the former. And to some extent, that that frees them up to say things like this, because they just do not care if they don't get any votes in uh, Oakland or New York or Chicago anymore.
0: After the break, when Republican language has real-world consequences. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. At the same time you were writing about this rhetorical shift from Republicans, a writer I really love at the Washington Post, Perry Bacon, was noticing the same thing. And he wrote about how this rhetoric was more than just words, because as they gain power, Republicans are also strategically undermining Democratic cities. And I want to lay out how that's happening, because it's happening a few different ways, to just sort of unlock why paying attention to this rhetoric is so important. I wonder if we can start by talking about the ways Republicans, when they control a state legislature, can undermine self-governance in a city.
1: Yeah. Well, state legislatures are dominated by conservative rural interests, which means that even in states that tend to be in play in, for example, the presidential race, or might even send a Democrat to the Senate, they're very likely to have a Republican majority or even supermajority in the state legislature. And that's partly due to gerrymandering, but it's also partly due to just where people live and the fact that Democrats tend to be concentrated in urban areas. And, And the fact that Republicans have such power in state houses nationwide has given them the authority to basically stamp out any progressive policy at the city level that they don't like. And this has been underway for decades. I mean, this started with Tobacco ordinances, it started with cities putting in place laws against smoking. It's funny, it now seems like common sense, but there was a moment when this was sort of controversial, and it started as an urban policy experiment. And tobacco-funded conservative politicians went and drafted a bunch of what they call preemption bills at the state level to tell cities that they weren't allowed to ban smoking in, for example, restaurants or something like that. And the technique has evolved since then, and there are now a host of examples
0: yeah. I mean, like I remember back when St. Louis, like this was years ago, raised their minimum wage and then the state legislature made it impossible for them to do that. And then eventually there's a ballot measure. So the voters themselves weighed in and they obviously wanted more money. But it just shows this push and pull where, you know, an urban center can make a decision, but the state legislature can kind of Kool-Aid man in and just re-decide for them.
1: Right. And that's, that's the other problem, right, is like it's not just that states can overrule cities when cities decide what to do. Cities are are creatures of the state, right? They are created by state statute and they live and die at the will of state legislators.
0: Something that made me think a little bit is that a local policy center that tracks preemption put all of the Republican efforts to control what kids are learning in school, the sort of anti-trans bills, anti-CRT bills, they put that in the preemption bucket. Like, if your legislature is telling you what you can teach, which is a very local issue for people, very meaningful, it's taking away a local jurisdiction's ability to respond to their community. And I thought that was kind of interesting. I hadn't thought about it that way.
1: Yeah, you know, I used to think of this as like a, an issue where, as a journalist, I would point to the sort of hypocrisy of all this. Like, you, you say you're for local control, but then look what you're doing here. But at the end of the day, I think it, it's not even about hypocrisy or philosophy. It's just about power. <laughs> it's about the fact that Republicans control the state house. the state house makes laws that are more important than the laws that the city council makes, and so the Republicans get to do what they want. <laughs> and I should say, you know, this sometimes goes the other way, right? Like, you get some places where Democrats are in power, like California, and Democrats can say to cities, uh, you can't do this. You know, they can tell cities what to do about fracking. You know, they can say, like, you know, cities can't legalize fracking. They can just ban fracking statewide. So I would hesitate to just put this so much on the Republican Party. I just think it happens to be the case that the Republican Party controls the state houses, right? They control like something like 30 state houses. So when we see examples of states big-footing cities, it tends to be Republicans big-footing Democrats.
0: There's another way that state-level Republicans have been exerting control over urban areas by straight-up firing people they don't like or trying to. This happened recently in Florida when Governor Ron DeSantis weighed in to kick a Tampa prosecutor out of his job.
1: And the governor continued to point to the suspension being related to Warren's stance on prosecuting abortions. Besides that, he did not give any other instances of Warren's wrongdoing. We now want to turn to- So the story in Florida is that there's a state attorney in the Tampa area named Andrew Warren, who's a Democrat, and he's basically been fired from his job by Ron DeSantis
0: even though he was elected to it twice. Right.
1: He was locally elected. And my understanding in Florida, and again, this varies from state to state, is that the Florida legislature backing DeSantis here can basically vote to get rid of a local official, despite the fact that he was elected by his his constituents. So to me, this is, on the one hand, it's just another example of the extent to which local officials... Cities, whatever everybody serves at the pleasure of the state house and the state house ultimately makes the decisions, but it also goes to show the degree to which politicians Republican politicians have just a disdain for people who live in cities, the decisions they make, the people they vote for, the policies they support,
0: yeah, there's one more way that Republicans, when they have power in a state, can swat down at cities, and that's by choking off funding to them because as you've said, cities are reliant on the state to provide them with the resources they need a lot of the time. And there are reasons for that having to do with taxes and and other stuff. But I think it's important to look at a concrete example just because it's one that really mystifies me, which is what's happening in Jackson, Mississippi with the water crisis. Mm -hmm. Because you could really see the disdain of the Republican governor who lives in Jackson, Mississippi. That's where the state capital is. And he literally gave a speech to some folks over the summer while the water crisis was going on, saying it was a good day not to be in Jackson. I've got
1: to tell you, it is a great day to be in Hasburg. It's also, as always, a great day to not be in Jackson. Um, <laughs> feel like I should take off my emergency management director hat and leave it in the car and take off my public works director hat and leave it in the car.
0: And you learn everything you need to know from that. Can you just lay out a little bit how the water crisis was fed by this, you know, Republican effort to keep money out of urban hands?
1: Yeah, so uh, there's, a, there's a couple things going on here. I think the big picture thing to understand is that cities in the United States are pretty poor because wealthy people tend to live in the suburbs. And that's certainly the case in Jackson. And that means that when it comes time for the city to raise money to, for example, um, make a big investment in its water infrastructure, they're very limited in what they can do. They're both limited because they, uh, first of all, they don't have that much direct revenue they can raise. Um, New York City is allowed to collect income tax, but most cities cannot do that, and so they're limited to basically property taxes. And then again, the property within city limits is not super valuable because all the rich people have moved to the suburbs. So there's not that much money there that they can put to use. And the other thing, which is really important, is that the way cities actually fund this stuff, like water infrastructure, is that they borrow money to do that. But Jackson has a really poor credit rating, so borrowing money there is really, really expensive.
0: But what's the argument from the legislature or anyone else in Mississippi not to help the city out? You would think it would be in their self-interest to make the water better in Jackson since it's where they go to have their legislative sessions.
1: I don't want to speak for the Mississippi State Legislature, but I think the philosophical defense of cities being left to their own devices, even when something like this comes along, which I would argue is like a legitimate humanitarian crisis and that deserves like immediate federal intervention, they would say, well, uh, you made your bed, now, now lie in it. Right. I mean, that that is the argument from state officials when when cities find themselves in in dire straits. And you heard this with New York City in the 70s, right? Ford to City drop dead, famous tabloid headline commemorating the fact that the federal government was looking at New York's impending bankruptcy and basically saying, not our problem. So the question is like can they be shamed into helping? I think the answer is no.
0: <laughs> I know that you've emphasized throughout this conversation that the problem here is really structural. The way our government has been set up from the beginning, it prioritizes rural areas over urban ones. So I guess I wonder the rhetoric you're hearing from Republicans now, especially when it comes to cities. Do you think any of that can change without some kind of structural reform to incentivize that change, I guess.
1: I think there's two things happening, right? There is the structural political problem in the United States that the Republican Party has basically realized they can continue to win elections and accumulate power with only the smallest share of voters in urban areas. And that means that in terms of their policy and in terms of their rhetoric, they can basically uh, scorn the people who live there and, um, and treat them as if they don't have much importance because politically, they don't. So that is problem number one. But the second one, which I think is maybe even more toxic and worrying, is the idea that you just have this whole political class that feels that people who live in cities are not part of their universe, right? They don't feel they represent them. They feel they're on some other team. And so I think to some extent... This is playing off, right, old anti-urban bias built into the Constitution, but it's also playing off something more recent, which is a bunch of Republican voters watching violent videos of people robbing convenience stores on repeat, right, and getting convinced that the cities really are this bad and that the people who live there are so distant from them in terms of their values and the way they live that they just don't matter and they don't care about them.
0: So there's a structural problem and then there's this other cultural issue Which seems, frankly, like neither of those seem easy to address.
1: No, I agree with you about that. I see things getting worse
0: before they get better. (laughs) Henry Grubar, I'm so grateful for your time. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Mary. Henry Grubar writes about housing, transportation, and urban policy for Slate. And that's our show. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Carmel Del Shad, Madeline Ducharme, and Mary Wilson. We're getting a ton of support right now from Anna Phillips and Jared Downing. We are led by Alicia Montgomery and Joanne Levine. And I'm Mary Harris. Go track me down on Twitter. I'm at Mary's Desk. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you tomorrow. This is the story of The One. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently